Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this morning we'll be focusing on verses 6 through 8, talking about the restrainer of the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll go ahead and start in verse 3 and read down through verse 8 just to remind you of the previous context. Again, it's our great joy and privilege to read the inspired Word of God, so please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come the day of the Lord unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time... He will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And may God bless the reading of his word. So the reason why the great apostasy has not yet come, we hope, and the man of lawlessness revealed is because he is being restrained. So he cannot appear on the world scene until this restrainer is removed and then the lawless one will be revealed. We can all remember the famous story of the little uh, Dutch boy who sees a leak in the dike. He puts his finger in the hole and stops the leak and prevents the dike from bursting and he stays there all night long and saves the town from the dike bursting and a flood of water just devastating uh, the whole area. And in a much greater way, Uh, The restrainer is holding back the floodwaters of this apostasy, if you will, and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So the Apostle Paul now begins to present to us why the, the day of the Lord has not come because we have not yet entered into that great apostasy and the man of lawlessness has not been revealed And those have to happen first, and then the day of the Lord will come. And those things have not happened because of this restrainer that he mentions in verse 6 and 7. So, there are many different views on who this restrainer is. And uh, we're going to try to look at four Uh, options this morning. It's of interest to me. Hopefully it will be of interest to you as we try to uh, understand what the Apostle is saying here. But I remind you that I've read where the great uh, church father Augustine in in trying to identify who the restrainer is just said he he couldn't make it out. And so uh, we're in good company if we can't be real dogmatic on any of our uh, solutions or answers. But let's uh, begin by looking at uh, three things, general principles that we do know about this uh, restrainer. Uh, And then we'll launch into some differing views of who or what that might be. So notice first off in verse 6, you know what restrains him now. So the restrainer was operating in the first century. So he's uh, whatever that refers to, it certainly was active in the first century. So Paul says, you know what restrains him now so that in his time uh, he will be revealed. A second observation about the restrainer is 
when Paul is describing the restrainer, he uses both a neuter gender and a masculine gender. So if you look at verse 6, he says, you know what restrains him. In Greek, that's a neuter gender. Now gender is, we're talking grammatical gender here. But he uses a neuter gender. And then in verse 7, he uses a masculine Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So this is one of the perplexities of trying to identify the restrainer. He has to fit both with a neuter idea and also a masculine idea. So this is what creates a lot of problems. I won't uh, get into into the deep weeds on that as we work through our views. But nevertheless, that's a, that's a unique observation here. Uh, the third thing we know is that at some point, the restrainer is going to be taken out of the way. Now, ultimately, the restrainer, of course, is there by God's will, God's purpose, God's plan. And ultimately, it's God who will take him out of the way. Uh, so all of this is under the providence of God. Although the views of the who, the who or what the restrainer is is going to look at the means that God is using, but God is sovereign and, and ultimately is in control. But in verse 7, at some point, he who restrains the man of lawlessness will do so until he's taken out of the way. And when the restrainer is taken out of the way, then we find this surge and escalation of this future apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. And I'm just giving you my two cents. Again, there's many different views on uh, this passage, but I'm just uh, sharing with you what where my convictions uh, kind of lie. Okay, so now let's look at some of the different views of the restrainer. The one that is holding back, if you will, the, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. So one of the popular views uh, in the church among some is that this restrainer refers to the Holy Spirit or more specifically, the Holy Spirit who indwells the church. And this is uh, the view that some uh, dispensationalists would hold that the restrainer has to be taken away before this uh, apostasy and man of lawlessness would, uh, can be revealed, and that's the church. The church has to be raptured up, taken away off the earth before the tribulation begins, and once that restraining ministry of the Spirit indwelling the church is removed, the church is gone, the Spirit is gone, and now this great apostasy, a man of lawlessness, can be revealed. So that's a view that I was uh, taught in seminary by some uh, of my professors. So it's very much tied to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. So that's, that's one particular view. Now some of the problems uh, with this view in my understanding is that the Holy Spirit uh, directly probably is not being referred to as the restrainer. Notice at the end of verse 7 it says that He will be taken out of the way. Now that language does not fit the treatment of the third person of the Holy Trinity. You're going to take Him out of the way. So the idea that the the restrainer is the Holy Spirit directly, and then the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way, seems very inappropriate, very odd language to speak to the Holy Divine third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So what about the idea that it's the Holy Spirit indwelling the church? And so you've got to take the church away and primarily as a pre-trib rapture. So the church is taken away. The Spirit goes with the church. And now this lawlessness uh, can come in and take control. Uh, The problems with that particular idea, for example, some of them is that 
the church really, I don't think, is in view here as the church. Because whenever the Apostle Paul refers to the church and uses a pronoun, it's always a feminine pronoun. Uh, For example, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So, Paul says He is taken out of the way. So again, the idea that the restrainer is the church is the wrong pronoun according to the way the Apostle Paul normally uh, describes the church. So that's one of the the problems with that. Another one is that uh, obviously this view is put forth by those who hold to a pre-trib rapture. Many good and godly saints uh, hold that uh, particular position. Uh, if you've been following <clears throat> in the studies of First and Second Thessalonians, uh, that's not my position. I don't hold to a pre-trib rapture of the church. I think the church is going to go through the tribulation, and I think the rapture takes place in conjunction with the second coming. And in my mind, that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches. That's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 teaches. And I think that's consistent throughout 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So I, don't, I think that's another mark against that particular view. You have to hold, according to, to the people who hold this view, they normally identify with a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, which I think is uh, problematic. Another problem is that if that's what Paul meant to say, that the restrainer is the the Holy Spirit indwelling the church, and the church has to be taken out of the way, and then the lawlessness comes in, why didn't he just say it? Why does he use more vague language like he is taken out of the way if he's actually talking about a pre-trib rapture of the church? Paul has already mentioned the rapture two other times when he says that the saints are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, or in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, we are gathered together with the Lord. Why doesn't he use similar language if he actually has the rapture of the church in view here? But he says he's just taken out of the way. So again, if he wanted to refer to a pre-trib rapture, or at least the rapture of the church, he's already used language of that already. Why didn't he just repeat that language? But here he uses more vague language. He's going to be taken out of the way. And we'll uh, kind of explore maybe what that might mean. So I think that's a problem. Um, Paul could have just stated it as he's already talked about the rapture two times before, if that's what he had in mind. So that's problematic to me. And, and then another reason why I don't think uh, the rapture of the church, specifically before the tribulation, is in view, is because I think Jesus clearly said the church is in the tribulation. So if you look, for example, at Mark chapter 13, this is the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple at 70 A.D., the later time of persecution, the second coming, all of that's in the context. And notice what He says as He's speaking to His disciples. He says, When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. So during this future time of tribulation, the disciples will be there. And not only that, they'll be indwelt by the Holy Spirit because when they're arrested and they are brought up on charges, Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because the one who speaks through you is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is there. The church is there. So the idea of a pre-trib rapture doesn't seem to fit what Jesus is describing. Now some would say, well, he's talking about a future 
generation of Jews during the tribulation period. But notice how this whole section begins in Mark chapter 13, verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. So he's answering the questions of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And he kept saying, you, when they arrest you. So these guys are representatives of the church. They are the foundation of the church. So if he really meant to say, well, the church is going to be gone and this is a future group of Jews during the uh, tribulation period, he should have made that clear. But he's talking to his disciples. They're the foundation of the church. They're going to be in existence on the earth when this future tribulation comes. The church will be. They'll be indwelt by the Spirit. So the church is in the tribulation. The Holy Spirit is indwelling them. So you don't have a pre-trib rapture where the church and the Holy Spirit are taken off the earth before the tribulation comes. So that's another uh, problem, big problem to me in, in identifying the restrainer as the Holy Spirit indwelt church, they'll be raptured up before the tribulation period comes. So that's the first view on uh, the restrainer. Well, let's move on. There's a second view, and that is that the restrainer is God-ordained civil government. Now, this is kind of an interesting view because the civil order of law inherent in government under God's common grace restricts the growth and spread of lawlessness. So what restricts lawlessness? Lawfulness. And who normally carries out lawfulness within any given society? Well, it should be the civil government. So law restrains lawlessness. So it just kind of fits on this level. And this would be a reference then to the power of lawful civil government holding back the eruption of violence and lawlessness. Now the Apostle Paul has already taught in the book of Romans the very purpose and nature of God-ordained government. For example, in Romans 13, verse 3, he says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now, this is what it should be. It doesn't always, uh, it's not always carried out this way. But he said, uh, Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So if the government, any civil government, is actually fulfilling its God-ordained mission, it should be restraining lawlessness and evil within a society. So when that civil government begins to promote lawlessness or not punish lawlessness, then obviously lawlessness is going to have an open door to spread and increase uh, its influence within any culture or society. So when the restraint of civil government is removed and becomes lawless, then the man of lawlessness can promote his lawlessness more aggressively and violently And he'll quickly become a world dictator with a one world government. So this particular view is that what is restraining the man of lawlessness is basically the common grace of God upholding civil government that is actually punishing evil and in that sense restraining this great explosion of lawlessness within culture or society within the world. Now what's interesting about this view is that this may explain 
of why Paul is kind of vague in the way he's describing the restrainer. He just says that he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So the what restrains him could be the just the idea of civil government. The he who restrains him would be the emperor or the king or whoever's you know, on the throne at that point in time. But he just, he just mentions in vague ways that he's going to be taken out of the way. But he doesn't actually mention civil government. And why might that be the case? Well, obviously it could be dangerous for Paul if he explicitly identifies a restrainer as civil government because people in the Roman Empire in the first century may think that he's actually plotting mutiny or anarchy against the rule of Roman law. So to speak in more vague ways may be beneficial uh, so that uh, he doesn't bring the heat of the state down upon him. Those who advance this view, that's kind of the way they will, they will uh, present it. So anyway, that's, that's a possible view. Uh, some, uh, some good people hold that view. That it's basically the, the common grace of God-ordained government restraining evil. So that would be the restrainer. There's a third view, and this is that uh, the restrainer is an angel of God. In this sense, the neuter would just be generally the power of the ministry of the angel, and the masculine of he will be uh, removed would, would refer to actually an angel, an angel of God. Now what's interesting about this view is that angels can do these kinds of things. For example, if you are familiar, I'm sure you are, with Revelation chapter 20, we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years years so here we have an angel that binds satan for a thousand years and a thousand years every time the number 1000 is used in a temporal context like a thousand years or a thousand generations it's always figurative it's not a hard fast literal thousand years it's always used figurative so a thousand years is as a day to the Lord, and then he goes on to say it's like, or as a watch in the night. It's either like a 24-hour day or a three-hour uh, watch in the night. But it's not meant to be a literal mathematical formula for calculating the age of God. It's a figure of speech. And that's the way it's used in the other places in the Bible. But here we have an angel that is able to restrain Satan. So this is kind of an interesting view uh, that is presented here. Uh, This particular angel has a key to the abyss, figurative language. The abyss isn't going to have a door with a lock and key as we normally think of it. He also has a chain. That's figurative, right? Because you can't take a chain made out of metal and bind an angel, a fallen angel with it. They don't even have a body, right? They're spirits. So there's a lot of figurative imagery going on here. But this angel lays hold of the dragon, the servant of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now what is interesting again about this particular view is that uh, when Paul is talking about the one who restrains the man of lawlessness, it would very much be connected possibly with the, with the binding or restraining of the influence of Satan to some degree. So that would kind of line up because the man of lawlessness He's going to come with the activity of Satan, right? He's going to be Satan's man. So if you're able to bind Satan, you're in some way able to restrict or restrain the man of lawlessness who is kind of the active hand of the devil, if you will. 
Now, of course, if you're like me and you grew up in a premillennial context, Revelation 20, we've always been taught, happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this is the premillennial understanding of it. Uh, what I'm suggesting, according to this particular view, is that this is actually referring to the first coming of Christ, the binding of Satan. Not the second coming, but the first coming of Christ. So that's a different view from many of us from what we've been taught. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of support for the idea that there was a judgment a restriction that came on Satan as a result of the first coming of Christ, as a result of His ministry, His death and resurrection. Let's just look at a few verses to lend a little support to this idea that maybe the restrainer could be an angel. And maybe this angel. In 1 John 3.8, John writes, "...the Son of God appeared," referring to His first coming, for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So in the first coming of Jesus Christ, in some way, the ministry, the work, the death, the resurrection of Christ destroyed the works of the devil. Now again, he's not talking about the second coming. He has appeared, past tense. That has to be connected to the first coming of, Jesus, uh, first coming of Christ. Then in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, <clears throat> he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So when Jesus died through his death, in some way he rendered the devil powerless now not completely totally in every way as we know but there certainly is a sense in which satan was rendered powerless through the death of christ now that's an interesting uh, verse you have to understand it somehow and it certainly seems to be putting some kind of a restriction on satan as a result of the death of christ on the cross Jesus in John 12, verse 31, said, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So who's the ruler of this world? Satan. And what did Jesus say about him? He'll be cast out. When? Now. During His first coming. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. In some way, Satan's ministry has been restricted and curtailed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Got to understand these verses somehow. And certainly Jesus is talking about now. He's not talking about something way off in the future when he'll be cast out. In Colossians 2.15, uh, the previous context is talking about the cross of Christ in verse 14. Then it says, when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, and, and in these kinds of verses, rulers and authorities normally refer to demonic forces. So when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. God triumphs over the rulers and authorities of demonic spirits. He made a public display of them and triumphed over them through Him, through Christ. Triumphed, past tense, referring to the death and resurrection of Christ. So again, in some way, when Jesus died... The rulers and authorities were disarmed. They were restricted in some capacity. We're still going to explore that in just a moment to what extent. 
but they are disarmed. Now that happened in the first coming of Christ. That's got to be factored into our understanding of uh, God's restriction or restraining of the man of lawlessness. Now notice what Jesus again said in Matthew 12. Now Jesus is in His ministry and he's, he, is, he is exercising demons from people. He is casting out demons and setting them free. Okay, that's what He's doing in the context. And then Jesus says in verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which He certainly was doing, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And now he's saying why he's able to cast out demons. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? This word for bind the strong man is the same word in Revelation 20 of the angel binding uh, Satan. Same word here. So what Jesus is saying that first, before you can take back the property that belongs to Satan, these souls that have been indwelt and possessed, before you can take that property away from the strong man, which is Satan, you first have to bind him. So in some sense... Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the apostles after Him that could cast out demons indicate that to some degree the strong man, the devil, has been bound. Because therefore, Christ and the apostles can take off, carry off His property. That is, set those people free and restore them back to freedom. That's kind of an interesting idea that Jesus is presenting here. There's also kind of an interesting Old Testament type of this. You remember in Exodus, the 10th plague, the uh, death of the firstborn and the Passover lamb was given to the Israelites to uh, save their firstborn. And the Passover lamb is one of those beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ. So the night that the Passover lamb died... The night he was put to death, we read in Exodus 12.12, 12, God is speaking to Moses. He says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. We'll strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So the idea is when the Passover lamb died, there were judgments that were executed on the gods of Egypt. Now that's a picture, that's a type. So when Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, dies, there are judgments executed on the demons and on Satan himself. Now, some people say, well, wait a second. If you're going to restrain the devil like the Revelation 20 passage, I mean, he's going to be cast into the abyss. It's going to be sealed over him. So it's like uh, the devil's going to be tied up with ropes and duct tape around his face and he can't move. He has no influence at all. And that is really not the idea that John is presenting in Revelation chapter 20. The nature of the binding, the nature of the restriction is very clearly set forth in Revelation chapter 20 verse 3. Which says, and he, that's the angel, threw him, that's Satan, into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed and after these things, he must be released for a short time. Okay. So let's suppose that the angel has restricted and bound Satan at the, at, during the time of Christ's ministry, and particularly in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Satan is now being bound during this whole church age. And then at the end of this age, he's going to be released. 
Now that fits with the idea that when Satan is released, the restrainer has been removed, Satan is now released for a little while, he activates the man of lawlessness, he brings about the great apostasy, and that's what he's doing for a little while right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it actually seems to kind of fit in my mind. But notice the nature of the binding in verse 3. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would, know, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer till the thousand years were completed. So the nature of the binding is he will not deceive the nations any longer. And that lines up with the fact that the gospel is now being spread throughout the nations and the nations, Gentiles, are primarily the ones flooding into the church. So the the binding of Satan is not a a complete total binding, an all-encompassing binding. It's restricted that he cannot completely, totally deceive the nations like he had been up until the time of Christ's first coming. So now the gospel is spreading throughout the nations. And when that spread of the gospel comes to an end, then the restrainer will be taken away. Maybe the angel, if if this is the right view. And then, basically, the whole demonic influence will be poured out. The man of lawlessness. And you get to this final uh, ramping up of the the, uh, evil that's going to take place. Obviously, Satan has not been rendered totally ineffective. Paul tells us we need to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6. Peter tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's still dangerous. He's still very active. But he cannot prevent the gospel from bringing in a harvest in the nations. He cannot do that. And that's what the binding is about. He can no longer deceive the nations uh, any longer. So this is kind of an interesting idea because... Right now, we're still enjoying that period where the gospel is going out to the nations and people are still coming into the church. So it it would seem to fit if you hold that view. And I kind of like that view. Uh, It's got other issues that you have to work through, but it's, it's a very interesting view. But eventually, when the restrainer is lifted up, then Satan will be released And then you have the apostasy, the the man of lawlessness, and then Christ will come and and finish him off. So that's the third view, that the restrainer is an angel of God. The last view, and I'll try to be quick, and it's kind of connected maybe with uh, number three, but the restrainer is the preaching of the gospel. That's what's restraining lawlessness and the apostasy, and the man of lawlessness. It's the preaching of the gospel. Now we do know from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, He said, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So while, while the restraining work is taking place, the gospel is being preached through the nations. And maybe some commentators believe that it's the very nature of the preaching of the gospel by the church to the world that is restraining and holding back this final apostasy in the man of lawlessness. Satan is kept from effectively hindering the Great Commission, the taking of the gospel to the world. Gentiles are coming to faith. Satan cannot stop it. Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that the restraining of the apostasy of the man of lawlessness is actually the church carrying out the Great Commission. Preaching the Gospel. Engaging in missionary activity. That that is the restraining force of God. And it's also kind of interesting, this has always been a puzzling verse, in Luke chapter 10, 
when the 70, they had been out preaching the gospel, okay, you remember? And they finally come back to Jesus. And it says, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Have you ever read that verse and said, what, what, what's he talking about? Well, it's still kind of a mystery, but, but what you find is that they're giving a report of preaching the gospel. And Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In some way, the preaching of the gospel is weakening or restraining the activity of Satan in certain ways. Just, just an idea. Uh, his wings are being clipped to some degree and they remain clipped while the preaching of the gospel is strong and going out through the world. And now, now, if that is the correct view, how important is it for us to engage in evangelism and missions? Because that's part of the means of grace of holding back this final apostasy and the man of lawlessness. Kind of an interesting idea if you take that particular view. Well, let's uh, wrap things up. Let's move on to verse 8. The destruction of the Antichrist. Then that law, once the restrainer has been taken out of the way, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. So now we find that the restrainer, whatever that is, whoever that is, is no more. He's been taken out of the way. And now the lawlessness, the lawless one, Antichrist, final Antichrist, will be revealed. And notice how Paul doesn't really dwell on the, on the evil reign of the Antichrist. He just says he'll be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. It's almost the idea that once the, the man of lawlessness is, is actually revealed, then Christ comes and crushes him. Uh, now obviously, he's going to have a reign of terror, if you will, and evil and lawlessness. But uh, Paul rather focuses on just him being slain with the breath of Christ's mouth and he's brought to an end. What's kind of interesting about this verse is that when Christ comes back, there's no need for a trial. The Lord is the omniscient, sovereign judge. He will come and slay the lawless one. So when Christ comes back, the Antichrist, the lawless one, is instantly dethroned his reign of terror immediately ends. His hatred and persecution of the church abruptly stops. The Antichrist, with all of his power and might and authority, who exalted himself, claiming to be God, is crushed in a moment of time. Like an elephant walking on a cement road steps on a bug. Only a whole lot worse. Christ will come back and He will slay this person who is claiming to be God with worldwide power and authority to harm and hurt people. He'll be instantly crushed. How does He do it? With the breath of His mouth. I don't think He's, he's going to just breathe on Him. Maybe He will. But the breath of His mouth in other places in Scripture is used uh, figuratively for, for the Word of Christ. But what's interesting is that Christ doesn't need to raise a hand. There's no hand-to-hand -hand combat here with the devil and then finally Christ will beat Him. There's no great bloody or war uh, of the armies of the lawless one and the armies of the Lord that come with Him. No, Christ merely breathes on Him and His reign of terror ends. The Lord probably will just speak a word and the lawless one is reduced and rendered impotent, powerless, harmless, totally subdued and executed. All by the coming of our incredible Savior, Jesus Christ. 
This will take place by the appearance of His coming. It will be quick. Satan, the Antichrist, all who are on his side will be slain and punished with everlasting death in the lake of fire. It will be amazingly sudden, swift, thorough, and decisive. If you want to read about this fleshed out a little bit more, you can read in Revelation chapter 19, which I think is a a description of the second coming of Christ. In chapter 20, like it happens several times in the book of Revelation, reverts back to the first coming of Christ. And that happens several times in the book of Revelation. But in chapter 19, let me just read some of this for you. You can see some of the, just the power, the glory of Christ's second coming. He said, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against Him who sat on the horse and against His army. And the beast was seized and with Him the false prophet who performed the signs in His presence by which He deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped His image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone." And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. How effortless, how easy the victory will be for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ doesn't need to lift a single finger to completely subdue and defeat this evil foe. So what confidence should we have in our great warrior, Savior, Jesus Christ? What confidence can we bring to our lives today to encourage our faith? Knowing that one day this mighty Savior, this God the Son, this second person of the Holy Trinity who came down to earth and took on a second nature and became the God-man and gave His life on Calvary's cross to suffer in our place and bear our sins and absorb the wrath of God that we deserve to, to endure in hell. And He rose from the grave on the third day and ascended into heaven and now rules in righteousness. But one day He will come and judge all of His enemies and all of those who have turned an unbelieving heart away from Him. That when He comes in power, we can know and we can have the assurance that this great mighty Savior is King and God and Lord over all. And that includes the trials in your life, the enemies that you have in this life now. That there is no trial that can stand in your life but by His wise and holy permission. There is no storm that can batter your soul that He cannot with omnipotent power say, hush, be still, just as He said to the winds and the waves and they would immediately fall down and worship and bow before Him. He can say that to any of your trials, any of your troubles, because He is the Lord. He's the Master of the winds and the waves. He's the Sovereign over all of our sufferings. He's the Creator and Kingly Ruler over all His creatures. And though we may not know in detail what the future holds, we do know who holds the future in His hands. 
And this is our Savior. This is our King. This is our coming Lord. We are safe in His hands. As Paul reminds us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The future ultimately looks bleak, but we're in the hands of Christ who is Lord over all. And as long as the man of lawlessness is being restrained, let us press on with the Gospel. Gospel light can keep lawless darkness in check. And it's the only hope for mankind. When the restrainer is taken away, let us who may be alive at that time be faithful to the Gospel, faithful to Christ, and treasure Him more than we treasure all the comforts and all the riches that the world has to offer. Let us treasure Christ more and above them all. Willing to sacrifice all for His name and for His glory. May God give us that kind of faith. And if we are called upon, like the disciples, to suffer for His name, let us share their attitude who went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And in the meantime, let us look ahead to the return of Christ, the King of glory, For when He comes, all evil will be defeated and judged. And the saints of God will shine like lights in His heavenly kingdom forever. That is our hope. That is our confidence. And that is our strength by the grace of God. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we do uh, thank You again for the opportunity to struggle in understanding these uh, verses in Scripture. And Lord, if we don't understand them correctly, if I have not presented them uh, correctly, Lord, we pray that the Spirit would teach and correct us. But Lord, there are many things that we don't understand, but there are some things we understand well. And we understand that Jesus died for our sins. We have a Savior. And that there is hope only in Christ. And oh God, if there's anyone here this morning, old or young, that have not yet fully come face to face with their own sin, their own wickedness, have never been convicted, oh God, would You convict them. Remind them that there is a day of judgment coming and there is shelter in the storm only in Christ. He's the ark who alone can keep us safe. So grant them faith and repentance that they might come to know Christ and love Him and live for Him because of what He's done for us. And Father, we just also know that there's a day coming when The Lord Jesus will come back. And regardless of what enemies there are in the world, He will crush them. But Your people are safe in His hands. Whether we live, whether we die, we are safe in the hands of our Savior. And let that fill us with great joy as we look forward to the glory that He has won for us and has waiting for us And until that day, may we be faithful in loving and serving Him. Help us, Lord. You know our weakness. Give us strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.